from our studios in New York, Chicago, and the United Kingdom. This is Rail Group On Air's special podcast series, The Coronavirus and the Rail Industry. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Wilson, editor-in-chief of RTNS Magazine, and today we have a two-for-one for you called a twofer. We have two podcasts. In the first podcast, William C. Vantuono, who is the editor-in-chief of Railway Age Magazine, talks to Warren McCarriger. He's the vice president of government affairs and advocacy for the American Public Transportation Association. That will be followed by my interview with Polly Hansen who is the Director of Security and Emergency Management with APTA. So we're looking to give you a broad viewpoint as far as the recent government stimulus package that was recently passed, as well as how transit agencies are dealing with COVID-19. So here we are. We will kick it off with William C. Vantrono and his interview with Warren McCarriger. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. I'm very pleased to have on this podcast Ward McCarriger, who is Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy at the American Public Transportation Association, APTA. Uh, Ward, welcome to this this special series. We know that you've been been hard at work uh, in Washington uh, on some of the provisions that have come out now with this uh, stimulus package uh, and the 24 $0.9 $0.9 billion that are available or is available for, for, uh, for public transportation. Uh, Ward, uh, tell us first a little bit about your background. Uh, you've got 20 years on, on Capitol Hill and mm-hmm. in this area. Sure. Um, well, thank you. And this is my very first podcast, so um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I, um, I joined APTA uh, almost two years ago, this, this coming week. Um, and, and vice president there for government affairs. And prior to that, uh, worked for 25 years on the House Transportation Committee and was, um, for the last 20 of that, the Democratic chief counsel. For mm-hmm. the, so I was involved in kind of lots of the legislation that moved forward, but the Surface Transportation Authorization Bill was, is, is and always has been kind of the biggest bill that that committee does. And so... Um, was most involved in that on a regular basis. When I started on the committee back in the kind of the early 1990s, um, under then uh, kind of incoming chairman Norm Mineta at the time, um, one of the first issues I was assigned was public transit. So that's how I got my start in public transit. So in uh, crafting this uh, uh, the, the, this legislation on, on the Hill, uh, you you have intimate knowledge of, uh, of how things are done. Um, so can t- tell us and tell us something about what went on behind the scenes. And, and I know APTA, of course, was uh, was a, a integral part of that. Well, this, um, you know, this was unusual, even compared to my experiences. I mean, I think the the whole um, governmental response and, and what we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic has just been, uh, you know, kind of a, a extremely unusual um, in terms of the, the changing environment and, and the kind of the depths of the effects of the pandemic. Um, in some ways, it reminded me of 9-11, um, but I think even that was more constrained 
having worked on the Hill at that time and working on TSA legislation, creating TSA, it, it um, this seemed even more unsettling. So I think that was the issue for, from a staff standpoint, is this was a kind of a constantly evolving issue in terms of the economic effects. And so, yeah, I think from a staff standpoint, uh, this was really, our issue was really with the appropriations committee. They were the ones who were kind of, the, they together with the leadership were the lead uh, entities to kind of draft the, the provisions on, in terms of providing transit funding. And I think they were just overwhelmed um, with trying to gather information um, as to what was happening. And, and that's where I think we and our members played a critical role in trying to help them shape the legislation. So then really the members of Congress and their staffs were relying on APTA staff and APTA members to help them craft the legislation then, if I understand I, you correctly. Well, I think it, definitely in terms of the information they were seeking. So, mm -hmm. you know, they were trying to determine what was really happening. And, you know, I think one of the key advocacy elements that APTA pursued was, um, you know, kind of immediately as the pandemic took hold, um, we did a survey of our members and try to ask them, the transit agencies, what was happening? Uh, what effects were they seeing? How much money were they spending in terms of the cleaning costs? What were they seeing in terms of lost revenue from, from fare box, sales tax, parking fees, all those different elements? And they responded to our survey and that helped us gather information that then we were in a good position to share with the Hill what we were seeing. So the, the legislation, as, uh, as I understand it, the CARES Act, uh, as it's called, uh, the transit portion, it is substantial, $24.9 billion, but it is quite complex. There are lots of elements to it. They're uh, looking over it uh, uh, with, with my, my limited knowledge of uh, uh, how, how things are funded with, with, with capital grants and new starts and all the other different funding streams. Um, I think, can you break it down into maybe, maybe two portions of operating and capital? Is it, or is it something else? Well, I think, Certainly you know, what's from, available. Um, well, I, I'd say first kind of, um, from Aptus perspective, just, just so you kind of have the context, what we were seeking on the Hill we really focused on two elements as we gathered the information. One was the highest possible funding level to address the impacts. And second was that the funding be distributed quickly and get to our members because they were having these enormous effects and, and they were seeing literally, you know, ridership decreasing 10% a day. So one of the biggest transit systems in the country was sending me their daily ridership numbers and it literally went from you know, down 60% on rail on Monday, 70% on Tuesday, 75% Wednesday, 90% by Friday. Um, so having all that information was kind of key. So where that led us then to was what the legislation provides is $25 billion for public transit. Um, that was the final agreement on the CARES Act. And to put that in context, it's, it's a highest appropriation in the history of the transit program. Um, the annual appropriation is $12.9 billion. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, almost twice the size of the annual level. And comparing this back to the Recovery Act in 2009, that provided $8.6 billion for transit. 
So, so this is on top of the uh, usual $12 billion, $13 billion to use, to use round numbers uh, yep. that, 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 that transit normally receives through, through I guess it's through, through the FTA, correct? Yes. Administered by the FTA, rather. Yes. Um, no, this is on top of that. And so um, you know, this is very important to kind of stabilize the transit agencies because they really are experiencing significant revenue loss with all of the um, stay-at-home orders uh, around the country in different states. So the funding then is distributed by formula. And there it gets a little bit complicated, and that's where I think when you read the law is a little hard to figure out. Um, but a I, little? <laughs> fair enough. Maybe, maybe, no. for, <laughs> maybe for you, but for me, it's, it's, it's like uh, trying, to, uh, trying to read War and Peace in three minutes. So. Yes. Anyway. So it's, um, what they did is they looked at four programs, kind of four core formula programs, and said, look at the ratio of the funding of those in 2020. Mm-hmm. And take this $25 billion using how much would go to each state and city under those programs and distribute it through the two kind of core formula programs, the urban formula program and the right. rural program. So mm-hmm. what they've done, they announced their apportionments today. Um, and, you know, they, in essence, put $22.5 billion um, through the urban formula programs, which go to um, cities 50,000 and above. Um, and then $2.2 billion through the rural program, which go to smaller communities, those 50,000 and below. Now, how are those funds uh, allocated? Uh, or, uh, are they are they uh, they're given directly to the transit agencies? Like, for example, whatever New Jersey Transit's going to get, do right. they uh, New Jersey Transit accesses it directly, or does it have to go through um, the governor's office or or who? How do, how does that work? Well, it depends on the program and it depends a little bit on the state. And New Jersey Transit's a little different in that it's a state-run state, state run system. Um, mm-hmm. Most um, kind of systems around the country are, are not kind of state-run. They're more, the large communities typically get the funding directly. And they get right. it directly. For, so for those that are a community of more than 200,000, that community, typically the transit agency itself will receive those funds. Right. So you're talking about New York MTA or SEPTA or Chicago yep. Transit Authority, Los Angeles Metro, right. properties like, like that then. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and they get those funds and, and, and you see the notices that were put out today, the tables, they show how much each community gets. So for Seattle, it'll list you know, the exact amount, $520 million or something that will go directly to that community for this smaller program for, for communities under 200,000, um, particularly for rural areas, it goes to the governor and then the governor distributes those funds. Mm-hmm. And then for kind of that in between the smaller communities, it goes to the governor and then it really depends on state law as to whether it goes directly to the community or they kind of work it out at the state level. Mm-hmm. So, so these funds are are they primarily for operating purposes to co- to cover cover the, the cost of operating the system? They're um they they're eligible for both, but clearly, mm-hmm. um the 
the CARES Act objective is to address with this kind of immediate need to deal with these funding shortfalls for lost revenue, the operating expenses of the system, continuing to pay the, pay the employees. And so, you know, what's really different about this act is you have a much broader eligibility to spend your federal dollars on those purposes when traditionally for large communities, they can only spend it on capital projects. Here they can spend it on either and I think the expectation is that they'll really use it as a first opportunity for the um, kind of the operating side of the thing, mm -hmm. operating side of the ledger. So uh, in terms of capital, then uh, I'm, I'm assuming that the, uh, if you use it for capital, it would have to be for capital maintenance, not, not for capital expansion. Is, is that correct? Well, I think the, um, the eligibility is there for either. It's, it's not necessarily limited to um, maintenance. Um, it's clearly for things like vehicle cleaning, which fit into the maintenance category. Mm -hmm. But if there's another project that's related to, to COVID in terms of the, the need to do seat replacements on a bus or something, and you know you can make those ties, I think it is eligible um, and, and we would expect FT to approve it. Mm -hmm. And today, and the notice they released today, um, you know, I, I think an, an initial read in the last hour that it's been out, I'd say it has a pretty broad interpretation of you know, they're going to be pretty flexible in terms of the way that they allow communities to decide what's the best use of these funds to address the COVID impact. Okay, so uh, so in terms of maintenance and uh, for, for rail purposes, then that money could be applied toward uh, necessary track maintenance, like replacing ties, replacing rail, switches, signals, uh, all, all the heavy infrastructure then, as well as uh, uh, overhauling or, or repairing or, or state of good repair for vehicles, but not something necessarily like procuring new vehicles. Uh, is that is that correct? Well, I think I think you know that's a, a kind of yet to be seen. Mm -hmm. So I think I don't think we know the full scope of the eligibility yet in terms of what will be allowed. I think you know FTA's expectation will be the communities will first try to address these operating costs. But if they have addressed those and have kind of filled that hole, and then they have these related capital expenditures, again, that, that play some role in terms of preventing, preparing for, responding to COVID, then, then I think that the funds will be eligible for that purpose. Okay. Um, Business provisions, uh, that's, that's something that uh, the supply community uh, would be very interested in. What the, how does that work with this? Bill? Yes, so there are some very important business provisions and APTA has a lot of business members who, who are, you know, find these critically important to, to their own um, kind of the impacts from COVID. Um, and I'm not an expert in these areas, but kind of three that I would just highlight are deferring payroll taxes, um, so, mm -hmm. um, businesses um, can defer the payment of payroll taxes, and other employers can, um, for paying half of this year's taxes in at the end of 2021, and the other half at the end of uh, 2022, which will help them in terms of the immediate 
cash flow problems that they're experiencing. Second is the CARES Act creates a new SBA loan program. Okay. Paycheck Protection Program. Um, that's going to be online within a couple of days, um, as of today, you know, March, uh, April 2nd. And it will, um, it's called the Paycheck Protection Program. That allows loans for small businesses. And if you use those funds and meet the criteria to keep your payroll and not be forced to lay people off, those loans can be forgiven. So there's going to be great demand in that program. $350 billion is provided for it. But uh, we are already hearing that that program could easily be oversubscribed. And then third is for large companies, those with more than 400, 500 employees, there's another loan economic stabilization program that's new for large employers. That program has more restrictions on it um, with regard to, say, things like executive compensation. There are limits that come along with those loans that you don't see in the small business program. So, so these these funds with these loans, this is uh, this is over. This is not part of the twenty four point nine or twenty five billion for transit. This is this is something else that can be tapped into if needed. A absolutely, and this you know on the business side, this is part of the overall two point two trillion dollar package, mm -hmm. but it's entirely separate from the twenty five billion that goes directly to the transit agencies. Yeah, because as we well know, uh, Ward, a lot of transit agencies use uh, uh, contracted services uh, for uh, for every everything from um, from maintenance to uh, even even operations. So this it's pretty. Uh, it seems as though there might be some opportunities for some of the operators uh, if, if they feel if they're in a, a position where they're stressed. Uh, companies that operate uh, some of the larger transit systems under contract, you know, like the MBTA, for example, uh, they might be able to, to tap into this, uh, this funding source. Yes, uh, I, I think they may. And I think the other element is, is an unresolved question, um, is whether a transit agency could use its funds, um, the funds it receives under the $25 billion to pay an existing contract, say with that private operator that they that they have currently, we've actually posed that question to the FTA because uh, we don't know the answer to that. And and you know both our agencies and our our business members are interested in that issue, and we haven't yet received the response. But uh, we know that FTA is looking at that issue. So uh, I, I would think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions here. There's a lot of uh, uh, gray areas. There's a lot of interpretation. And I would imagine that your members will go to you to get the answer, not you personally, but you, <laughs> otherwise you, you'll, you'll never get off the phone uh, or, or off your email, but um, they will go to APTA to, uh, to get the answers. Yes. Um, well, a lot are coming to me. <laughs> but, okay. So, yeah, get off my phone. So, but, so if you're uh, listening, folks, uh, give Ward a chance, okay? <laughs> so I'd say more importantly is APTA has set up uh, our own kind of uh, email box. We have a whole coronavirus section to our website. And mm -hmm. we have a, an area where uh, coronavirus questions, where you can pose questions to APTA 
and then we respond to I, the person, one of our members, who's posed the question, and then also post those common questions. Um, similarly, FDA has set up a similar system, and they've begun to to post some of the FAQs that have come in that are important for kind of the administrative interpretation of these provisions. Well, I think in this uh, in this environment, uh, in this situation, uh, communication is. Uh, essential absolutely essential i'm sure you'd agree with that absolutely and that's where even the podcast will help to get the word out on what's eligible and um how to use these funds and you know i think we are really encouraging our transit members to to move quickly and invest these funds to stabilize their payrolls and stabilize the agency because they're providing these essential services and the uh, public transportation, like the freight railroads, is considered an essential service? It is. Um, and That's kind of a no-brainer, I would think. Yes. And the, the workers are, that's kind of, and the, the different security directives that have gone out, um, you know, I think we've been, we've been pleased that transit workers um, have been covered uh, under that. And, you know, as importantly, they're providing these essential services for healthcare workers and grocery store workers and others who have to continue to help the rest of us kind of survive um, mm -hmm. the pandemic. And for many of them, you know, um, uh, not necessarily the doctors, but maybe the orderlies in a hospital, um, they're lower income employees who need to rely on transit because that's the, the you know, economic way for them to get to and from their, their jobs. Yeah, those uh, those those services have to keep running. You know, even even though we've seen a huge fall off in uh, uh, in New York as subway riders. Of course, New York, is, as you well know, is the epicenter of this uh, pandemic. Uh, the uh, hospital workers, you know, all the healthcare workers, emergency service personnel, other people that provide essential services to the community. Uh, they. Uh, even though the ridership in general has uh, has fallen off uh, as much as ninety percent, uh, those trains, they you know the subways and the buses too. Let's not, I mean this this is a rail publication, but let's not forget how important um, uh, the bus system is. Um, those services have to keep operating. Absolutely, um, they do, and you know I think we've seen our systems really cope with these challenges. Um, and find innovative solutions. Um, so that's led to you know things like backdoor boarding, so that you don't have that direct interaction between the driver and the riders, um, where people are, aren't maintaining the social distance of six feet. Um, they've moved away from fare collection in some communities because that's just one other interaction where you could see the tr the transfer of COVID nineteen. Mm -hmm. They're creating spacing on their buses where they're blocking certain seats so that people maintain that and are trying to run a service that ensures that the buses don't become overloaded or rail cars become overloaded in terms of the number of people on them um, so that they can continue to provide the essential service and at the same time allow the riders to kind of travel safely and in a you know kind of a safe environment. Yeah, we we don't we don't want uh, our public transportation systems uh, to be a conduit for uh, for spreading uh, this 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 disease. Absolutely not. No. But so that that's that's a tough that's a tough thing to do. You know, you, you know, we can we can all appreciate that. 
now and I, I think the systems are working in it every day um, with the cleaning of the vehicles and the rest and it, it's it's a challenge and they're meeting the challenge okay well ward uh thank you so much uh for joining us uh we know that you have your work uh well, I won't say your work cut out for you because I think your work was cut out for you uh, quite some time ago. Uh, but you, you know, you've uh, you, you've got the experience on the hill and the experience with uh, with, with uh, transportation. And uh, I guess uh, stay healthy, stay well, and uh, and we we thank you for your service. Oh, thank you, and and we look forward to working on to the next agenda item, which is to try to uh, do the economic recovery piece of this, which should be, you know, moving forward with uh, APTA's reauthorization recommendations in package four of the COVID recovery effort. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. That was William C. Van Tuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age magazine, talking to Warren McCarriger about the federal stimulus package. McCarriger offered a really nice behind-the-scenes take on the legislation and provided a nice breakdown of the funding. I don't know how I'm going to follow that, but now our APTA focus turns to Polly Hansen. Again, Hansen is the Director of Security and Emergency Management at APTA and will give us a more down-on-the-front-lines look in terms of what transit agencies across the U.S. are facing with this pandemic. Here is my interview with Hansen. So tell me, what, what's the general feeling with, with transit agencies out there during this COVID-19 well, I think that agencies realize that these are unprecedented and challenging times, and I think they also realize that uh, their critical infrastructure and their employees are essential, and they're providing um, life-supporting services to folks who need access to medical care, and then, of course, the people who are driving our economy, uh, clerks and pharmacies, orderlies, doctors, nurses, and hospitals. Um, so I think the employees are very proud of the um, service that they're providing, and certainly um, safety is a core value of transit agencies, and so the safety of uh, employees and the writing public is uh, foremost and first in everybody's mind. Looking at uh, personal protection equipment, um, what's the feeling you get among the transit agencies out there? I've heard a mix of stories. Uh, some weren't offering PPE at the beginning, now they are. Uh, what's the general consensus that you're getting out there as far as providing, you know, operators and stuff, PPE, personal protection equipment? Well, certainly you know that there are job classifications that require that type of equipment on a regular day. And certainly with healthcare uh, workers needing it and there being a shortage there, uh, certainly the transit agencies have um, been faced with an inability to get PPE for folks who regularly need it to do their jobs. So um, I think agencies were looking for guidance, were following the CDC uh, guidance, and which has recently changed. And so now you have um, you know, many agencies uh, struggling to find uh, PPE, even in the way of uh, cloth masks for their employees. 
Um, you know, it was differing across the country. Uh, some agencies had allowed employees to go get their own masks and bring them to work and wear them. Um, other agencies were uh, trying to work through their local government entities uh, to ensure that their employees were recognized as being essential and to try to see if they could access a, a cache of PPE. But the PPE issue has been very, very uh, challenging. And, um, you know, agencies are at varying levels of accessibility to that and then distributing it to their employees. I think you'll see more agencies now trying to provide it because CDC just changed the guidance and is, in fact, encouraging everyone to wear it now. And regarding staffing, now the transit agencies that I've talked to, I've talked to a handful um, as far as, you know, um, operators coming down with the COVID-19, not a whole lot of cases out there, thankfully. But do you, do you see this as a possible staffing problem moving forward, or do you think that uh, it's going to be relatively under control? Well, I think that You've had, you know, both sides of the country, certainly in Seattle and New York. I think New York, um, you know, is looking at that issue. I think that people are comfortable now that they're allowed to staff. Some people early on took different measures to separate their staff um, by uh, distance and hours, went into kind of an A and B continuity of operation configuration so that, um, you know, a, a necessary, you know, bus mechanics were divided into teams so that they didn't work with each other or close to each other or the same days of the week or hours uh, to um, reduce the possibility of people um, getting sick or um, um, making other folks uh, sick. But as the disease uh, spreads, as the virus spreads, uh, of course, people, you know, are exposed uh, in public as they're perform performing that vital service of uh, giving folks a, a ride uh, to the general public. And then, of course, you go home in your own life and are exposed there as well. So, um, you know, transit employees, just like anybody else, are um, either being exposed to people who um, have tested positive for COVID-19, um, may have been exposed to somebody who's currently being tested, somebody who thinks they may have been and is self-isolating. Uh, so I think transit agencies are very concerned with that, have um, encouraged folks to stay home if they think that they've been exposed, and, um, you know, providing any a number of um, uh, access to uh, medical personnel, medical advice, virtual opportunities to have a conversation, to provide paperwork, and once again, encouraging people uh, to stay home, which is generally not the case. You know, a lot of times there are very strict uh, guidance on uh, the taking of leave and the scheduling of leave and um, calling off sick. And I think in many cases you've seen those um, altered, changed, and modified because, once again, the safety of employees is paramount. And so folks want people to stay home, take care of their loved ones, take care of themselves, and, um, and certainly be safe. Uh, in terms of construction and maintenance uh, on, the, on the light rail side, uh, Sound Transit uh, basically determined that uh, their contractors were not doing a very good job at following social distancing and, and other safeguards regarding the COVID-19. What are, are, are transit agencies actively involved out on the job site making sure that contractors are uh, following protocol or are some transit agencies basically separate, well, that's the contractor, uh, that's their responsibility. What's the feeling 
on, on that? Well, it goes back to safety being a core value. So in transit agencies, there's generally somebody who is assigned on a routine basis to ensure that uh, contract work is being done safely. And, you know, certainly because of the requirement of having uh, physical uh, distancing, um, I think that uh, those uh, messages have gone out to contractors and the safety of contractors who work for transit agencies is just as important as the employees um, you know, directly um, employed by the transit agency. It's a, a huge concern. Uh, so I think there are um, a, a mechanisms to communicate that and then to uh, inspect where where appropriate. A lot of the, a lot of medical experts are saying that this this virus could settle down in the summer months, but there could be another spike in the fall. What can transit agencies do? to, in a sense, recover during the summer, but ramp up again in the fall? Well, I think there are plans now, and many people are looking at uh, restoration and recovery plans, and those very issues that you just mentioned would certainly be included in those plans. And I think that you've seen every day transit agencies looking at the data of ridership, uh, considering their ability to access cleaning materials, recognizing that by reducing service, you're reducing uh, the number of staff that are directly in contact with um, passengers. So this has been an ever-fluid uh, situation, depending on where the transit agency is and what's happening in the community that they serve. And so I think just as um, service has been reduced, it can grow and then be it can be reduced again, which agencies are doing today when they look at physical distancing. So an agency may reduce service someplace, see that um, that may have created a situation where people were too close together, and then increase service, you know, based on the data. So I think agencies are looking at their data uh, for the service that they provide now and have that ability to be very nimble because they are right now uh, in the situation we're in. So as folks go to recovery and restoration, uh, they'll be using some of the same uh, decision-making processes that they've been doing every day to provide the service that they're um, in, um, allowing, permitting, being able to deliver in the communities that they serve. Financially, transit agencies have gone through recessions. Uh, they, they've dealt with recessions, a drop in ridership before. This is like no other. How do you think transit agencies are going to start recovering from this type of a deep recession, if you can classify it as that? Well, I think that's a very interesting conversation, and I think that you'll have CEOs at high levels um, discussing that. And I think that that's the next thing that's on people's minds. Certainly, um, the funding, uh, the stimulus package is huge, and so folks were looking at the monetary um, you know, recovery that, that will provide for um, the things that they've spent money on that they're hoping to recover. You know uh, from the interviews that you've had that many people rely on sales tax. So it's a very complicated um, issue that um, is not one size fits all because of the differences of uh, transit depending on their size and the communities that they serve and the um, political infrastructure that exists there and how they get their funding. And so I think this is a, uh, a complex issue that people will work their way through, but uh, it won't be the same for everybody. And just as the uh, reduction of service hasn't happened simultaneously, um, some of the other things will happen uh, differently depending on where uh, those 
communities are uh, with the virus and uh, with their local decision makers, and um, and that these are all very different issues as we've seen on TV with the cities who are managing those for the transit agencies that serve those uh, communities, both uh, rural and uh, urban. There you have it, a heavy dose of American Public Transportation Association. We'd like to thank our guests, Warren McCarriger and Polly Hansen, both with APTA. On behalf of William C. Van Tuono, I'm Bill Wilson, and I will see you down the line.